0: Justice, may it please
1: the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to,
0: and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back, everyone. We have a great lineup here for week two of SCOTUS 101.
1: We're so glad that you joined us again. We've got a lot of exciting things to talk about.
0: We have confirmation hearing updates, order updates, oral argument updates, and a fantastic interview with the king of the amicus brief himself, the Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro.
1: But, Giancarlo, before we get into any of that, I must first address something that several listeners have pointed out from a previous episode. Last week, during my tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I accidentally referred to Sandra Day O'Connor as the late- Justice O'Connor, instead of merely the former Justice O'Connor. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. To paraphrase Mark Twain, the reports of Sandra Day O'Connor's death have been greatly exaggerated. No, you did not miss another 2020 plot twist. I am happy to report that while Justice O'Connor retired from public life in 2018, she is still very much alive and well and spending her time in Arizona. My sincerest apologies for that mistake, and thank you to everyone who pointed out that I wrongly, though very much unintentionally, killed off the first woman Supreme Court justice. 2020 has been rough enough. No need to give it a helping hand. No, no. 2020 does not get Sandra Day O'Connor as well. Well, for those of you who have been hiding under rocks or banned from social media this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee has held four days of confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. President Trump's nominee to fill the seat of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: So for those of you who have not been following this process with the religious fervor that Amy and I have been, I thought we would pause for a minute and introduce Amy Coney Barrett, or as she's affectionately called, ACB. So where to start? Judge Barrett, born Amy Coney, is from New Orleans. She's one of seven children. Her father was a lawyer, her mother was a teacher, And that's why she said uh, she probably became a law professor.
1: She went to Rhodes College and studied English literature and French and graduated magna cum laude. From there, she went on to Notre Dame Law School on a full scholarship, where she was an executive editor of the Law Review and graduated first in her class. One fun anecdote, she took constitutional law from Professor John
0: Garvey. She first came to his attention when he blind graded her final exam. He said her exam was better than the answer key that he had prepared, so he ran around to his other colleagues showing them uh, her exam and later on uh, found out which student had written that exam. She clerked for Judge Silberman on the D.C. Circuit and then for Justice Scalia, and actually Professor Garvey helped her land the Scalia clerkship by writing her a one-line letter of recommendation. She is the best student I ever had.
1: That is one heck of a letter of recommendation. It's bold. After her clerkships, she was in private practice for three years, and then she joined Notre Dame as a professor of the law school, where she spent the next 15 years writing top-notch scholarship on constitutional law, originalism, statutory interpretation, and starry decisis. She quickly went from, quote, the best student I ever had to, quote, best professor I ever had with accolades from students, including three distinguished teacher awards given by graduating classes.
0: She served as a professor there until 2017 when she was confirmed to the Seventh Circuit. In that time, in her three years there, she's participated in more than 600 Merit's Opinions and written more than a
1: hundred. She manages all of this incredible career while raising seven, that is right, seven children. She and her husband, Jesse, have five biological children and two children they adopted from Haiti. So, John Carlo, moving on to the hearings themselves, broad overview, big picture. What are some of the main takeaways that we got from these hearings?
0: Amy Coney Barrett showcased not only an incredible sense of grace under pressure, but what an intellect. Such high expectations, and she exceeded all of them. She ran intellectual circles around the senators. But she was so gracious, like a law professor explaining things to a 1L during office hours. And it was very endearing. She had no notes and took no notes. One of the most impressive things, she could quote at length from opinions, law review articles, and other nominees' statements. She could remember any case that the senators mentioned to her by name alone, fine details, and all of this with nothing but a blank notepad in front of her.
1: Yeah, I think every American should watch and rewatch these hearings, um, if for any reason, because they're basically a free constitutional law course taught by one of the best professors in the nation. Frankly, I demand CLE credits for this. It's, it's that good. She is that good.
0: You know, and I have a couple of recommendations. If you don't have the time to watch all of these hearings, because it was more than 20 hours over two days, there are two segments I think that are really worth watching both from the first day, uh, Senator Ben Sass's exchange with Amy Coney Barrett. He asked her open-ended questions about originalism, textualism, the role of the judge in our constitutional system, and he just let her talk. And you really got a great sense of uh, not only what her thoughts on those topics are, but you know, Amy Coney Barrett as a professor really shined. And then I would also recommend the second half of senator kennedy's questioning from the first day he had her take him through textualism what it means why we do it in a really plain language easy to understand
1: kind of way and then i think the second main takeaway that stood out to me was how many senate democrats Seemed very early on to implicitly recognize that this is less a fight over Judge Barrett's qualifications and philosophy as much as it is a chance to uh, make this about the election and to basically explain to people why they should vote uh, for for Joe Biden over President Trump um, and and to you know go over President Trump's uh, policies and things they don't like uh, and and make this about the election lesson about Judge Barrett, um, which is very, very interesting. And it's it's a complete 180 from, I think, what we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings. So, Giancarlo, what did we see uh, from Democrats in terms of strains of attack on her judicial philosophy when they did talk about Judge Barrett and her philosophy?
0: Yeah, well, we actually didn't see a lot specifically on her judicial philosophy, but we saw specific attacks on certain writings of hers that bear on it. So, She had written, for instance, that she thought Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in NFIB versus Sibelius, which upheld the Affordable Care Act's mandate as a tax, was wrong. And Democrats argued that because she disagreed with John Roberts' analysis there, she must want to strike down the full Affordable Care Act in Texas versus California. And we saw a distortion of her view of precedent. She had written a law review article where she said, in essence, that the Supreme Court's current practice with regard to stare decisis is correct. The balancing of incorrectness versus reliance, interests, and age, and stability of the law, that's correct. And in that article, she disagreed with a position taken by Professor Randy Barnett, more in line with Justice Thomas's approach, which is, if a precedent is wrong as a matter of originalism, it should just go. And uh, the senators tried to pin Barnett's position on Judge Barrett. What was most notable from Democrats' questions was what was missing. There was no attempt substantively to engage with or critique originalism and textualism. Every critique of Amy Coney Barrett's cases or of Scalia's cases, which was a frequent line of attack because she has said his judicial philosophy is mine, uh, always focused on policy outcomes, never methodology.
1: Another routine line of attack from senators was against Judge Barrett's dissent in the Seventh Circuit case of Cantor v. Barr, where she would have held that nothing in the text, history, or tradition of the Second Amendment gives government the authority to permanently revoke the Second Amendment rights of nonviolent felons. There was a lot of distorting Barrett's reasoning in this dissent. Uh, we'll attach a link to an op-ed I wrote explaining how this dissent is eminently reasonable and, and actually a phenomenal originalist analysis of the Second Amendment of individual rights versus civic rights. And I think a lot of senators were either confused or intentionally misrepresenting Barrett's distinction between civic rights and individual rights. So a major crux of that case of Cantor v. Barr, which dealt with uh, the the federal prohibition on gun ownership for nonviolent felons, and there's no way of, of really getting those back under federal law, a major crux of that case was the state's argument that gun rights are just like voting rights, and therefore we can take them away from nonviolent felons. So Barrett went through the Supreme Court's very clear history of distinguishing between civic rights like voting and individual rights like the right to keep and bear arms, and many senators tried to pin the distinction on the writer instead of the originator. I think a lot of times you'd have thought Judge Barrett unilaterally created this distinction, uh, but she did not. She has never weighed in on this as a matter of good or bad policy, uh, but simply did her job as a lower court judge and said, This is how the Supreme Court has analyzed it, and so must I. Moreover, for the record, the text of the 15th Amendment clearly envisions the loss of voting rights for felons in a way that the text of the Second Amendment does not. And so if you're wondering why and how voting rights kept coming up during this hearing, it had to do with this misrepresentation of her dissent in Cantor. Amy,
0: what did we see from the Republican senators?
1: So you did see some Republicans using their time not addressing Judge Barrett, uh, but to refute Democrat talking points about the election, about President Trump, about things that are going on with coronavirus policy. Um, Some used their time to allow Judge Barrett to introduce herself on more of a personal level. um, And some used their time to either opine on originalism textualism, the proper role of the judge. Um, but I, I think the best part was when they just let Judge Barrett discuss those issues. Uh, and finally, I think it's worth pointing out in one section, because there's been a lot of talk about court packing, uh, both from the right, from the left. It came up a couple of times during the hearing. And John Carlo, uh, talked to us what happened with civics, as he called himself anyway, eighth grade civics teacher, Senator Ben Sass.
0: Yeah, so I, there are two things to note there. So during his opening statement, Senator Ben Sass gave a great eighth grade level civics lesson, and it was really great uh, to hear. And Mike Lee gave what I'd call you know civics advanced during his opening statement. I'll just recite Ben Sass's quote here about core packing. He said, "Core packing is the idea that we should blow up our shared civics, that we should end the deliberative structure of the Senate by making it just another majoritarian body." for the purposes of packing the Supreme Court. He called it a partisan suicide bomb. Court packing is destroying the system we have now. It is not reforming the system. And anyone who uses the language that implies filling legitimate vacancies is actually just another form of court packing, is playing the American people for fools. And the American people want a DC that depoliticizes more decisions, not politicizes more decisions.
1: So moving on to orders this week at the court, John uh, Carlo, what's going on? So a
0: few orders to note. The court announced that it will take up three consolidated cases that ask the question whether administrative patent judges must be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And the court granted a temporary stay of a lower court order that had required the Census Bureau to keep counting through the end of the month.
1: What about oral arguments, GC? What do we have here?
0: All right. So we're going to cover two highlights. First up was Torres versus Madrid, which Amy cleverly named the Catch Me If You Can case, which I think is I great. hereby
1: officially dub this forever and always Catch Me If You Can.
0: <laughs> so the issue in Torres is whether an unsuccessful attempt to disdain a suspect using physical force is a seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment or whether it has to be successful. The facts of the case are this. A police officer approached Petitioner Torres while she was sitting in her car. She was high at the time, and she says she thought that the police were going to carjack her, so she drove off towards them. The officers say they feared for their safety and opened fire. They hit her twice, but she did not stop. She drove 75 miles away to a hospital where police arrested her the next day. Two years later, she sued, saying that this was an unreasonable seizure. So this case is great. It has almost certainly been a law school exam hypothetical because it falls into this very niche legal gap between two cases. The first is Mendenhall. There, the court held that a person is seized when a reasonable person believes he is not free to leave. So under Mendenhall, here you have guns drawn, bullets flying, pretty straightforward seizure. But we have another case called Hodari D. And Hodari D. holds that someone is not actually seized when a police officer yells stop but when the officer lays hands on or applies physical force that restrains movement, even if unsuccessful. So here we have an application of force, but it was at range, a bullet, not a hand, and it didn't restrain her movement even for a moment. So the question is, is any force sufficient as the petitioner argued, or is some measure of physical custody or control required as the respondent argued at oral argument? This was what I'll call a deeply originalist oral argument because the focus was very much on what did the founders mean when they used the word seizure. Uh, so we were looking at cases from the 1600s. We were looking at interesting hypotheticals. Uh, if you were hit with a snowball, is it a seizure? Or if you were shot by a sniper at 1,000 yards, is it the ordinary use of the word seizure when the, uh, to say that the, a pitcher has seized the batter when he hits him with a ball? Um, this this is gonna be a fun opinion to read, but I think law professors will be disappointed to lose this law exam hypothetical.
1: The second case uh, that had oral arguments this week that we're gonna talk about is a consolidation of three cases under United States v. Briggs and United States v. Collins. Uh, This case, again, is actually three consolidated cases of soldiers convicted of rape under the Code of Military Justice, and they argue that their prosecutions were barred by the statute of limitations. Now, you'd think, given that intro, that this is a pretty straightforward argument and analysis. It is not. Why is that? It's because the Code of Military Justice states in the relevant sections that crimes punishable by death are not subject to a statute of limitations under the text of the Code rape is punishable by death. Now here's the legal complication. Under long-standing Supreme Court precedent on the civilian side, the Eighth Amendment prohibits the death penalty for crimes that, like rape, do not result in death. So despite the text of the code saying that the crime of rape is punishable by death, the appellants here are arguing that the Eighth Amendment forbids such a sentence and therefore despite the text, despite the location uh, of where rape falls within the text, their crimes are not, in fact, punishable by death because the Eighth Amendment says they can't be. The government's counter is essentially twofold. So first, they argue that the court has not said that death sentences for rape are unconstitutional in a military context. And second, they argue that under any plain statutory interpretation argument, Regardless of whether the court now holds that such a sentence would be unconstitutional, Congress very clearly intended that the crime of rape not be subject to a statute of limitations. So the basic textual argument comes down to this. If the nature of the punishment changes, was the exception from the statute of limitations tied to the nature of the crime or the nature of the punishment? In other words, is the offense still punishable by death for purposes of the statute of limitations if the Pentagon says, well, we are never going to execute anyone for this offense? And if so, what's what's the difference between having an Eighth Amendment ban and having a de facto Pentagon ban? Um, interesting, too, I think, is the government's apparent argument that the Eighth Amendment might not apply at all in a military context Now, they backed off of that a little by saying, look, it it doesn't matter, even if the Eighth Amendment applies generally. Uh, Coker, the the specific case at issue on the civilian side, specifically doesn't apply here. And either way, it doesn't affect the statute of limitations. Congress clearly envisioned that rape as the offense was not subject to the statute of limitations because it is rape and not because it is punishable by death.
0: Well, next up, we have an interview with the Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro on his new book, all about the history of the confirmation process. We are delighted to be joined today by Ilya Shapiro, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the Supreme Court's very best friend, having filed more than 300, according to his bio, but maybe over 400 now, amicus briefs. He's also the author of several books, including his most recent, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, which we'll discuss today. Ilya, thank you for joining us.
2: It's great to be with you. I feel like things are getting back into the swing now that school started and the the temperatures are dropping. So Ilya, can you give us an overview of your new book? Sure. I look at the whole sweep of Supreme Court nomination battles and then getting into the lower courts as well as that's become increasingly politicized the last couple of decades, trying to get at how we got to where we are with this uh, toxic environment uh, enveloping our uh, debates, our discourse over uh, judges and uh, constitutional interpretation. And uh, what's new isn't so much that Politics is part of the uh, uh, debate. That's always been the case. Uh, nor is it that uh, you know, senators don't like people of their opposing ideology, say. Uh, what really is, is new is we have the confluence of several trends whereby different interpretive theories map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they have been since uh, at least the Civil War. And so given that it's a uh, a zero-sum game, there are only a certain number of judicial slots, and that's the case even if you expand how many slots there are, uh, these debates uh, over nominations are going to be fraught. So then I look at various reform proposals, whether major structural changes or how uh, confirmation hearings work or how many justices, term limits, all these different proposals. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I conclude that All of these uh, reform ideas, some of which have more merit than others, uh, are just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, because the problem isn't so much with the process, but with the ship of state, to continue the Titanic uh, metaphor, with the product. Uh, The judiciary, and especially the Supreme Court, is called upon to decide so many controversial uh, issues, and so the only way to reduce the battles over the nominees is to reduce their importance. Uh, by pushing power back to states and localities, rebalancing power within the federal government. So uh, these contentious debates happen in Congress rather than in the courts. Uh, And that obviously is not an overnight solution. It's taken us decades to get to where we are, and it'll take quite a while to, to, to change that.
0: So I want to unpack this a little bit and start talking a little bit about how at the beginning of your book you mentioned that the fraught nature of fights over the judiciary is not itself actually something new. And you give the example, for instance, of, of Ulysses S. Grant and his attempts to get three seats filled. Can you tell us a little bit about how things used to be and and how they're similar to the way they are today?
2: Sure. I mean, historically, in the broad sweep, only 126 of 163 nominations have been confirmed. That's uh, about three quarters. Uh, George Washington, the very first president, had a nominee uh, rejected. I mean, most 19th century uh, presidents uh, going into the 20th century have had Uh, issues. Uh, Between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, for example, only eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. Uh, And we've had uh, uh, nominees on whom no action has been taken, so Merrick Garland was not unprecedented. We've had uh, nominees whose uh, nominations have been, I love this euphemism, indefinitely postponed. So all sorts of Senate procedural tricks and, and what have you. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the, the biggest factor is whether there's united or divided government. That is, whether the party that controls the White House is the same party that has the majority in the Senate. Again, historically, uh, if there's unified government, then about 90 percent of nominees have been confirmed. If there's divided, about 60 percent. So that tells a lot of the story. Now, the reason for the fights Has changed and the underlying legal disputes or political disputes has changed Uh, less cronyism now uh, less concern for geographical balance Um, really with uh, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century uh, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt William Howard Taft they started becoming concerned with the quote real politics so it doesn't matter as much whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Whig or or what have you but are you on board with my Uh, legal policy agenda, whether it be trust busting for uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, more of a classical liberal sort of orientation with William Howard Taft. But even then, uh, lots of misfires, you know, with the kind of modern uh, Republican heartburn uh, that we might be familiar with, with David Souter, or even before that, Bill Brennan and Earl Warren. Uh, that's, That's nothing new. Woodrow Wilson Famous progressive, right? Appointed three people. Uh, Louis Brandeis, probably the most controversial nomination in our history, and I would argue more controversial than Bork or Thomas or, or Kavanaugh back in the day. Took the longest amount of time. First Jewish nominee, also a, a social crusader. Uh, anyway, that one very much in line with Wilson's progressivism. But then uh, McReynolds, who was kind of a, a retrograde, uh, one of the four horsemen who ended up voting against the progressive uh uh, logic, uh, except on antitrust. Uh, he also annoyed all of his colleagues. Several uh, resigned from his country club uh, in Chevy Chase uh, so as not to be around him. He would never talk or even pose in the same picture with Brandeis, etc. Very diametrically opposed nominee. And then Wilson's third was Clark, was kind of a didn't leave much of an impression at all. So even presidents who had very strong ideas about what they wanted didn't always get what they wanted. From their nominees, there's very little new under the sun. Uh, you know, different things have changed in terms of how the media has portrayed things, and as I said, the ideological alignments uh, between the parties. Uh, but certainly, nothing new to have uh, contentious confirmation battles.
0: So, in ages past, you know, if be it Grant or or um, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, shifting through the eras, did did the fights over justices sound the same? as they do now. For instance, I'm thinking of Gorsuch and, and sort of the talking point against him was that he votes against the little guy. Do we see similar themes uh, or or is there a different sort of partisan flavor to today?
2: There are occasionally similar themes. The the little guy sort of thing, that, that does resonate with the... Uh uh you know turn of the 19th and 20th century the the early progressive era although a lot of these debates happened not so much behind closed doors but in 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 smaller circles, the the national media wouldn't be covering them 24/7. I mean, heck, if you wanted to learn about this, you'd read about it in your local paper three days later. Um, Hearings didn't even start until uh, 1916 with that Brandeis nomination. Brandeis himself did not testify; that was seen as unseemly. Uh, The first nominee to testify was uh, Felix Frankfurter in 1938. Didn't really become a regular practice until Uh, the 50s. Um, So there was a lot of kind of the president negotiating with different factions in the Senate, both geographic, ideological, certain particular uh, issues, or when different industries were dominant. So the railroads in the late uh, 1800s, or the the steamships earlier, or the slavery question earlier. There there were certain things uh, around which these battles were fought, although equally as much over cronyism did did uh, is there a balance of the factions within the democratic party that andrew jackson was trying to furnish or harding uh who who tried to uh and hoover republicans who tried to have some balance on the court at one point taft uh when he was chief justice after he had been president advised Hoover to appoint a Democrat to to have more balance on the court. So you know, it, it goes back and forth. You know, there there are some similarities, but as the issues change, certainly the the, the focal points uh, uh, do as well.
0: I want to return, you mentioned Merrick Garland earlier, and you said the denial of, of, of taking up his nomination, that is not unprecedented. Can you unpack that a little bit?
2: Right. There, there were 10 nominations, including Garland, in our history, on whom no action was taken. Now, as I said, the idea of not having hearings, well, we didn't have hearings until 1916 in the first place, so that's uh, not as big a deal, I'd say. And, in fact, uh, later on in my book, spoiler alert, I actually come out for the idea that hearings have overstayed their welcome and they're, they, they present a greater cost to the public discourse than any benefit we get, given that we can learn about these nominees through their voluminous records that are instantly available uh, on the Internet. Uh, but anyway, uh, not having a vote taken... Um, You know, the last time, again, it's this divided government issue, the last time that someone was confirmed by a Senate of the opposite party to the president uh, to a vacancy arising in a presidential election year was 1888. So this confluence of divided government with an election year, when uh, confirmations tend to go down as well, uh, really boded ill for Garland, even though President Obama tried to make this a compromise nominee, kind of more moderate and older uh, than than the norm. Garland was the oldest nominee at 63 since Lewis Powell uh, in the early 70s. Uh, and so you know now 4 years later in 2020 uh, there's talk about whether Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump are going to be hypocrites if there's a vacancy and they they uh they nominate and 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 choose to go ahead with uh confirmation process on a nominee well again that divided versus unified government we have had Uh, Confirmations and recess appointments, for that matter, uh, in presidential election years, even in lame duck periods, even uh, by presidents who lost re election and were lame ducks. Uh, And they had, I think, nine times we've had lame duck. Uh, confirmation. So um, Garland, not unprecedented, obviously a lot of bitterness and political tension because of the escalation over uh, partisan battles in in judicial fights, uh, going back to Clarence Thomas, Robert Bork, even before that. Um, but uh, the actual process and the actual uh, political gambit, because it's just about raw political power at that point, not anything legal or constitutional, of uh, the Republican caucus deciding not to take up this nominee, uh, that's not a new thing.
0: So, Ilya, you mention in the book that this partisan rancor surrounding nominations is largely the court's own fault. You call it the result of the court's self-corruption. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, this really goes back to the late 30s, early 40s, where the court allowed the FDR administration to amend the Constitution without changing the text. So this implicit amendment process that expanded federal power, uh, reinterpreting the Commerce Clause to, to give the federal government more power uh, for federal programs, Uh, The general welfare clause, the idea that anything that can get a bare majority in Congress is by definition for the general welfare and therefore constitutionally justified, uh, as well as uh, changing the nature of our rights, uh, bifurcating our rights, some rights are more equal than others, understandings of unenumerated rights and and where we get them. Uh, This is what eventually led to the whole penumbras and emanations idea of where uh, rights to privacy uh, reside. Um, And so over the decades, it's now been uh, over 80 years, uh, that uh, transition or or that transformation uh, has led to the divergence in interpretive theory. And so what we think of as uh, originalism or or textualism, that's fighting back against that loosey-goosey interpretation of uh, a broad, essentially, Uh, unlimited or at least uh, with limits that are not judicially enforceable sort of federal government uh, and rights that aren't based so much in in text or structure or history, uh, but more based on uh, nebulous understandings of of, uh, the particular justices voting uh, in a case. And so that's what's led to a divergence of what we think of as constitutional law, what's taught in law schools, the the court's opinions over the decades from the actual text uh, of the Constitution, and by having that kind of self-corruption, uh, the court has allowed differing streams of interpretation uh, to emerge uh, and to coalesce around uh, the different uh, the two major political parties, and so people who are more uh, 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 pragmatist or purposivist in terms of uh, the purpose of legislation who uh, think that, well, if it's a, an attempt by the federal government to achieve a national solution to a national problem, that's got to fit in there somewhere, uh, or that uh, the text evolves over time, call it living constitutionalism, that is more identified with the Democratic Party and the nominees of Democratic presidents, whereas uh, those who kind of uh, read the the text uh plainly or are textualist or try to stick to and discern the original public meaning of constitutional provisions uh, when enacted, uh, those uh, uh, types of nominees tend to come from Republican presidents. And so that's why this battle, which isn't supposed to be partisan, uh, has uh, emerged uh, in that way. And kind of layering over top of that is a serious error that the conservative legal movement uh, made in response to the excesses of the Warren Court Uh, after that FDR era 30s and 40s corruption, when the Warren Court in the 50s and 60s uh, began writing uh, uh, new constitutional provisions or interpretations out of whole cloth, the response to that wasn't so much, well, that theory is wrong. Here's what the proper uh, structural and, and, and textual understanding of the Constitution is. Instead, it was, uh, you're being activist. We want judges to be more restrained and sit on our hands and and, and not do uh, not do this. And that's kind of a, a type two error responding to a type one error. And I think uh, ultimately, had we been simply debating interpretive theories rather than judicial modes, our discourse would be a lot healthier.
0: So would you say this evolution, is this evolution, in your opinion, related to the attacks on the court's legitimacy that we see now?
2: I think attacks on the court's legitimacy is a symptom rather than a cause uh, of uh, the problems. I mean, at, at this point, uh, the term judicial activism, for example, is a, is an empty one. It just means that the commentator disagrees with the opinion or or judge. Uh, and similarly, legitimacy, quote unquote, is an attack uh, when someone doesn't like uh, a particular uh, opinion. I think it's it's accurate. Uh, to describe someone judging not based on their legal principles. So, you know, I can disagree with a judge or justice's theory of constitutional or statutory interpretation. That doesn't make that theory um, illegitimate. Uh, But when a judge or justice is perceived as making decisions based on something else, not their view of the law, but uh, their view of some sort of strategy or uh, vote trading or, as John Roberts uh, has been accused of, including by me, uh, uh, making decisions based on what he views as preserving the court's legitimacy or institutional reputation, I think that is ironically uh, when the court is acting least legitimately.
0: I'd love to unpack a little bit of Justice Roberts. What do you make of his attempts to respond to the, the criticisms leveled at the court right now?
2: Well, he says that there are no Republican justices or Democratic justices or, or Trump judges and Obama judges, which is, which is all to the good. I mean, I think it's unfortunate in our public discourse to, to use these sorts of, of shorthand, uh, which is even, you know, goes beyond just talking about them being liberal or, or conservative. Um, certainly, on the among the Republican-appointed justices, we see a large variety of of uh, intellectual diversity. You know, the uh, Alito is different from Gorsuch on criminal justice, on First Amendment. Uh, justice Thomas is uh, very originalist and interprets uh, rights certainly differently than uh, Kavanaugh or or Gorsuch. Uh, Roberts, as we've been talking about, is more pragmatic and, and minimalist. Uh, less, I guess, uh, intellectual diversity. Uh, On the left side uh, of the court, uh, they tend to vote more uh, in lockstep, Uh, not necessarily because they're all result-oriented. I think it's more kind of a malleable, pragmatic sort of uh, approach to the law that they might use. And so Roberts, in trying to balance these kinds of concerns, is making the court less predictable, perhaps, Uh, And I think he's making a gamble that I don't care what legal elites say, it's what the man on the street, if the man on the street doesn't see the court as being five Republicans versus four Democrats on all the controversial issues, that'll inure to the court's benefit. The jury's still out on that. You know, the court's uh, people's confidence in the court has been declining over the decades on about the same trajectory as other institutions. Now, the Supreme Court still has a, a better reputation or a better approval rating than than Congress, than the presidency, than than most uh, governmental uh, institutions. Uh, but it's still part of this kind of uh, partisan trend and an overall downward slope in terms of of people's confidence in that. So, um, you know, anyone can be the judge of whether John Roberts has been successful in his project of maintaining the court's institutional integrity and, and reputation, you know, quite apart from whether we agree or disagree with him on any particular vote that he takes. So
0: how do we fix the problem that we find ourselves in now?
2: Well, you know what, Um, I don't blame senators too much for doing everything they can to support or derail a particular nomination. These things matter. Um, If Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 election, the court would be ruling in very different ways on uh, legal areas ranging from campaign finance to uh, education to religious liberty, I mean, the Second Amendment, you name it. Uh, and so it's we're not going to change that dynamic uh, overnight but it's 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 up to us commentators and and, and pundits and scholars to make the debate uh, present the debate to the public about different interpretive theories um, and and let the public decide whether they prefer originalism and textualism whether they prefer some sort of pragmatic approach whether they preferred a John Roberts sort of minimalism where you you try not to overturn past decisions and um, you know have have try, try to defer to the status quo as as much as possible but at the end of the day, that you know, I don't know if that's going to work. Again, getting back to the Roberts strategy, because the courts, the the court has let Congress get away with writing these broad laws, uh, passing the political buck, and forcing the tough political choices into the administrative agencies uh, in that way, and also uh, allowing the federal government to accrue power rather than letting this large. Uh, pluralistic uh, 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 diverse country uh, make different decisions in you know California versus Texas versus Ohio or uh, or what have you so in the long term uh, I don't think either structural changes to the court uh, or cosmetic changes to the confirmation uh, or voting process uh, is really going to make that much of a difference. Uh, you know, I think, as, as we discussed, is the court's own self-corruption that has allowed the political branches to uh, either escape uh, political accountability or, or amass imbalances of power that's, uh, that's led to uh, this fraught nature and the importance of the uh, divergence in interpretive theories. So, at the end of the day, jurist, heal thyself. Um, and before that comes, I think it's perfectly appropriate uh, for voters, uh, let alone senators, to take judicial philosophy into account uh, when they're making their votes.
0: Well, Ilya, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners eager to follow up, where can they find your book?
2: Well, sure. The book has its own website, supremedisorder.com, uh, but also on Amazon. If you enter my name, Ilya Shapiro, or Supreme Disorder, you'll you'll find it there. And for the rest of my work, I've been putting out a lot of op-eds that are uh, topical with the presidential election campaign as they relate to judges at Cato.org. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: What a fantastic interview, Giancarlo. Yeah, really neat to dive into the history. So now we've got... Personally, my favorite part of the podcast, the part where I get to try to stomp John Carly with trivia. Mm-hmm. Today's theme is shenanigans, court packing and unpacking. Are you ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. Question number one. Over the course of the nation's history, the size of the Supreme Court has changed several times. What is the least number of justices we've had on the court? And what has the highest number been? Bonus points if you know the original number under the first Judiciary Act?
0: Uh, Do you know? Okay, so this is a little bit embarrassing because I actually, for a Law Review article I wrote with Paul, our colleague, I actually delved deep into the history of the Judiciary Act. And this, I remember finding this, but I don't remember um, the original number. Uh, But I believe that the highest number was 10 or
1: 11. Do you have a guess at the lowest number?
0: I want to say four.
1: So i give you a half point. The highest number is correct. The highest number is 10. The least number is five. And the original number is six. And I still cannot figure out why anyone thought having an even number was a good idea. <laughs> it was early on. They were still learning. You know, we, we had a ways to go. They were figuring it out. So you get a half point. Moving on to question number two. We've heard about court packing, but what about court unpacking, as I will call it. Giancarlo, twice, Congress has passed laws to reduce the size of a court and hamper the president's ability to nominate a new justice by declaring that the next judicial vacancy would not be filled. For which two presidents did Congress unpack the court? You know, I
0: I don't have a clue.
1: I'll give you a hint. One of them involved the infamous midnight judge's appointments.
0: Sorry, not helpful.
1: That's all right. It's all right. Um, So the first time was for Thomas Jefferson. So after John Adams lost his reelection campaign, along with the infamous midnight judge's appointments, he also signed into law a bill reducing the number of Supreme Court seats from six to five. Unfortunately for Adams, the new Congress quickly repealed that bill. The second was for Andrew Johnson. After Lincoln's assassination, congressional Republicans were very worried that Johnson's hypothetical future court picks would help Southern states restrict the liberties of the freedmen. So they passed the Judicial Circuits Act, reducing the number of Supreme Court justices from nine to seven. All right, John Carlo, moving on to your final question. Many people are aware that the most famous threat of court packing in the last 100 years came from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. To what maximum number of justices did FDR plan to raise the court before he was talked down from the edge of this cliff? Ah. Oh,
0: let me see.
1: So, I don't know. Fifteen? Fifteen? You may not know, but that was a good guess. The answer is 15. Ho-ho. FDR, frustrated with the court's repeated legal smackdowns of his New Deal plans, would have increased the court to a maximum of 15 justices, adding up to six new justices for every justice over the age of 70 who did not retire. Uh, This plan was wildly unpopular. The Senate Judiciary Committee decried it as, quote, an invasion of judicial power such as has never before been attempted in this country. And the Senate voted it down by an overwhelming 70 to 20 margin. Well, I don't deserve that point, but I'll take it. I'll give it to you. So it's all fair. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts please, 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 if you love us, leave us a five-star rating. You
0: can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
2: You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Suera and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.